Today we are going to be in a portion of scripture in Philippians. We're coming towards the end of the book of Philippians, the fourth chapter. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 through verse 13, I mean 8 through 13, and then we'll just let the Lord speak for a little while as we're in worship together. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. Those things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The eighth verse here that we just started to read is probably one of the verses that God's people have just grabbed many, many times when they find themselves at crossroads of decision and wonder which way to go in choosing God's best. That's really the title of the message today, is choosing God's best. Because as Paul comes to the end of his writing, and he's coming to the very end of what he will impart to the church of Philippi, and it is coming from a Roman prison, he is bearing his heart on several levels quickly. I kind of look at it a little bit like the shotgun effect. He has a thought here, he gives it. He has a thought there, he gives it. He has a thought here and a thought here. But I notice throughout this beginning of, of Philippians 4, right on the top of every thought he's given and every challenge he's giving the church, he's saying, seek God's best. Look for the very best God has to offer. And as we look in the eighth verse here, and he says, finally, brethren, it's like he's beginning to summarize up the words in which he would be writing that this church would probably never hear much else from Paul. Some letter carrier would be carrying that over to him, to them from prison, maybe 800 miles. They will get the letter, they'll read it, and they will just partake of it in some particular way. But he says, finally, brethren, and I believe... Throughout this book, we have seen this tremendous affection that the apostle had for that church. It was like this bridge. 
It was like this connection that was so deep in his heart that no prison wall would ever keep him from loving that church with an amazing love. And as he writes here, finally, brethren, he begins to give a checklist that oftentimes I have even put a question mark behind each of these. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. And the question mark comes, is it true? I have come to that place of decision. You have too. Lord, is it true? Whatever is honorable, is it honorable? It, does it honor you? Does it honor others? Does it bless you? Does it build up the body of Christ? Whatever is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, ethical, moral, filled with integrity, that which resonates with godliness, whatever is right, whatever is pure, that which is clean, undefiled, that which expresses the very person of Jesus who was pure in every way and there was no sin or guile ever found in his mouth. Whatever is lovely, and that is Jesus. In every way, he is the fairest of 10,000. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright in the morning shower. We've read, we've heard, we've seen Jesus is altogether lovely. But Paul here says, when we come here as a church at Philippi, ask, Lord, is it lovely? Does it express that which just flows with the aroma of God? That which just pours out in an in amazing way. Whatever is of good repute. Does it bless? Does it really build up? Does it nurture? Does it encourage? Does it strengthen? And Paul is giving this church, which just us would find themselves in times of struggle and trial in many different ways, as he said, that which is of good repute. And then he seems to summarize it all up and he says, and if there's any excellence in any of this, if there is any excellence or anything good, worthy of praise in all of this, think on those things. Lock on it. Focus on it. Let God move in that area. When we think about choosing the very best God has, it's always overwhelming to me when I look out at a congregation and I think to myself, how many choices we here will make this week. And those choices can be the best or less than the best. And I think even to Paul writing to this wonderful church we call Philippi, he recognized this, that this church was a church that even though in many ways they were kind of like this shining gem that Paul would, would point to, this church, look at this church of Philippi, he's also saying something very important. Church, this is your choice every day. 
even at Philippi, no matter where you have been and how I have worked and how many people have come to Christ, you have the privilege and the calling to choose God's best. And this is where Paul is here. You know, it's a little bit like if we would go down here in the corner of Waddell and 303, and we'd go down there where all the new cars are. You've got the Fords and Chevys and Hondas and Dodges. And someone says, today I, I'm the owner. I'm the de- owner of all of these dealerships. Here's the deal today. Just choose any car you want. It's yours. There's no cost. I cover the license, the taxes. It's yours. Just grab it. Now, a lot of men here, we'd probably grab the pickup. And then there, some of you here would grab the SUVs, and someone would grab a, a real nice sports car. And, but, but here's what we would do. If there was a $29.99 used clunker in the lot, we wouldn't even look at that. What we're looking at is the best, because we just got the commission to choose the best. This is what Paul is saying to us in the spirit. You have the privilege at Philippi to choose my best, so choose it. What is the very best that I have to offer? And as we look at this again, it's that, and this really in many ways, you say, who is Jesus? It really describes Jesus in many ways. Jesus is true. He is honorable. He is right. He is pure. He is lovely. He is of good repute. And Paul says, choose Jesus and choose what Jesus would choose. Whatever that would mean, choose those things that Jesus would choose. It was about 15 or 20 years ago now, we were planting a church in Washington State. And there was about, I don't know, 50 adults, maybe, just starting, 50 children, kind of a young group, and all of a sudden, we got hit. And it came from so many directions, and I would look at these young families walking into the door of our church on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and I knew they had been suffering so tremendously. And I just prayed, God, give me one verse. One verse when this little group is dismissed that I could just give them week after week that could go with them as they leave, that will nurture and encourage and strengthen them during a special time that you've called us to endure as your children. And just like this, up popped Philippians 4.8. And week after week, at the end of services, we would just share that. Brethren, whatever is true and honorable, remember as you leave, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And I noticed something happened over the course of several months as we began to refer to that verse. I would look out at that congregation that you get to know really well when there's 50, and they would begin to smile. That verse was beginning to bless. It was beginning to heal. It was beginning to nurture them in their Christian lives, and testimonies were starting to come from their lives of what God was doing when they were choosing his best. And it is a privilege, I believe, just like we we think about that, going down here to the store and go, wow, isn't that amazing? Why would he ever ask me to choose any vehicle I want? 
But really, in Christ, it is a tremendous privilege to choose God's best. It is amazing the privilege, the gift, grace that God has. That says it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. All I ask you to do is choose that which I desire and represent me. And in verse 10, as Paul continues to flow, he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, Paul reaches back to this church that had, goes through a lot of different kinds of trials, and he says, but what I see now is you're coming back toward me, and you're giving toward me again, but there was a time you could not do this. What was that? Was that persecution? Was that probably even uh, natural limitations? Probably so. And Paul is saying, you lack the opportunity for a period of time to bless me, but now you're coming back to bless. And I love this because it portrays something so powerful about this church which is that even though they had the up, up times and the down times, they had the, the, the rich times and the poor times, when God opened the way, they were ready to go back and do it. Probably most everyone here could give a testimony of a time you just couldn't. And then all of a sudden you could. And you fill in the blanks. You couldn't, but you could. But what is so beautiful about this church, if you notice with, with, with me with Paul, he said their concern was still there. They still wanted to help, and they wanted to do it, and then God opens the door, and God begins to bless. And God begins to work mightily, and here out of this was this, the privilege that they could again choose what seemed to be God's best. We looked at this last week. Sometimes God's best is simply waiting on God. That doesn't mean we can't continue to pray, but the door isn't open. God has not made the way yet. God does eventually make the way, and he does it in the most beautiful ways and does it in so many ways. Several years, quite, several years ago, we were in southern China, and I had taught a group I taught many times before, a group of leaders about half this size, very poor. Matter of fact, they represented many churches throughout the city. And one time I heard their entire tithe per year of all of those churches combined was less than $5,000. They had very little. But this year, as we finished the conference, and I got to know many of them well for many years, who walked in there in a very difficult situation, here comes someone, a sister, walking up the aisle with a bag in her hand. Her face was just glowing. And she says, this is for you, for your trip. We couldn't do this before, but this year we can. And we thank God. And it's quite a story. You know, if your first thing in a situation like this, and if you ever go, you don't ever say, well, no, we're okay. God, just move their heart, receive it. 
And we thank God, and we receive that. But they were able, and here was this, as I look at this, here was this response of this dear, this dear church who could not, but then they could. And this is what Paul is, is teaching right here. You couldn't, but then you can. Now, I want us to look in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. And this is speaking of the churches of Macedonia, and that would primarily be Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Now, we're studying about Philippi. Thessalonica was a church not far away. It was Philippi and Thessalonica that was right there along the Asian Sea, and Berea was inland just a little bit. But Philippi is who we've been studying about. Thessalonica was a church that turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And Paul even says one time the message of the gospel went out from Thessalonica so far that he did not even have to speak a word because their lives were a declaration of his faithfulness. And then the church of Berea was a group. They heard the word. They received the word in their heart with all readiness of mind, but the word of God says they went home and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were men, of the, men and women of the word. And they were going to allow the word to come in with an open mind and a ready heart, but they were going to go search the word. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church here, and he points to this, these churches, these three churches and scattered consortiums of other churches. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God that has been given in the churches of Macedonia. These are these churches that we just spoke about. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Notice what was happening. They were suffering. They were in a struggle. They were going through various kinds of hardships and trials. I believe even Pastor Brad prayed this as he was praying over the brother about the sufferings of any given church. But here it says, as a result of this, it overflowed and abounded if you notice this with me, the abundance of your joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Oftentimes, we're looking for the can when everything is okay. When all the waters settle, I'll be able to do. But here's an example of churches that could when they really outwardly couldn't. But they could through Christ. God was doing amazing things in these churches. For I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, notice that, it was beyond their ability, that's Christ in them, they gave of their own accord, willfully within their heart, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the Spains. They said, you got to take this, please. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And let's grab that for a moment and hang on because it's so important in Christian giving on any level is he touched something that is so vital and that is at first we give ourselves to God. You see, what God wants is a willing heart. He wants a broken heart. He wants a contrite heart. He wants a heart that has been molded and shaped to his in his interest and to his glory. And so first this church says, 
God, you got us. And then we want to help other people. But first, God, you got us. Sometimes we say, Lord, I want to go help other people. But we stop to say, Lord, I just want first for you to just take me and use me as a vessel in whatever way you choose. In the 11th verse, Paul writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He does not say, I have mastered the art of contentment. He does not say, I have arrived at contentment. Matter of fact, if you look at this with me carefully, it's like he's saying, I'm still learning in a Roman prison what contentment really means. Oh, I've been a knight in the day in the deep. I've been, been in parable, perils of robbers and my own countrymen and among the heathen and among false brethren. I've been persecuted and scourged. I've been in famine. But he says, I have learned. Notice how far-reaching it was to be con content whatever circumstances, in whatever circumstances I am. You know, a lot of times contentment is learned on the field of experience and difficulty and trial and testing. Contentment is learned in places like, well, this is where Paul was. He was in prison. But he was saying, I have learned. It was there, and it is there that I am learning contentment. You know, contentment has several sides to it. A couple we'll just address. One is the natural side. We'll look in the word for just a moment at a reference to the natural side of contentment. I have learned, but Paul was saying, I have learned to be content with Christ's provisions. What God gives, I've learned contentment, whatever that means. There's also a spiritual side of contentment, and that is that side that, Lord, I have learned that you are sufficient and your strength is able and your power and your ability and your word is perfect. And if I will trust you, you will see me through no matter what. But Paul said, I had to learn it. You know, it's a, it's a little bit like uh, going back to that new car lot, but this time you're the customer and you're getting your vehicle fixed. Now, I drive a Honda Ridgeline, two-year-old Honda Ridgeline, so I take it in to get it serviced, and they say it'll only take an hour. And usually if they say an hour, that means two. And so you start... You read for a while and you have your computer. You start walking up and down the car aisles and pretty soon you stop and you look at a car. And it has really, really nice paint. And you open the door and you look inside and it smells really, really good. And you read the brochure and it says it's got some things on it that your truck doesn't have. And your truck all of a sudden is getting 10 years older. And you're sure that you're there for an oil change, but probably something else is going to happen. And contentment is fleeing. It happens in a lot of ways, and it comes in all different places. One of the people, Paul, I'm sure, as he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. 
uh, if we would sit and listen, it would just be amazing the places God was working in his life and the ways that he was bringing contentment. But oftentimes in our flesh, we're resisting contentment. I would guess in everyone's life right now, God has a work that he is doing, that he is wanting to build contentment that we're just a little resistant for. There's something there we're just not sure we want to go there. Uh, you think of someone like Moses. We all see a great man of God in Moses, but for 40 years he lived in, in, in Pharaoh's palace. For 40 years he lamented about the condition of his people. For 40 years he just was there under a regime he did not like. So God just put, took him there from there and he put him out in the backside of the desert and he was there for 40 years. And for 40 more years, Moses was learning contentment. And all of a sudden, the day comes, God speaks to him in the burning bush and says, here I am. And he says, now go into the wilderness and lead my people. And I could see Moses saying, I can probably take care of this in about a week. And he comes to the Red Sea and he doesn't do anything until God parts the water. And he comes out into the heat and the and the tremendous, uh, all of the complaining and all of the famine. And here was Moses, and God was teaching Moses a great lesson of contentment. Matter of fact, God took him to the mount, Mount Nebo, and there he stood with his God to recognize and realize he would never even go into the land that God had promised. He would just see it, he struck the rock instead of speaking the rock. He will not go into the land. And God was working a work of contentment in his life. Notice as we follow this through for just a moment, he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith, or whatever circumstances, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. But notice verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also now know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. You say, hold it, what's he talking about? You can't do that everywhere. Both having abundance and, and suffering need. And I believe if we look at this, Paul is saying, I am learning the spiritual discipline of relying upon God to work in my heart in every place he is putting me so that he will have free course and be glorified. I think of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and God called him and commissioned him to go back to the people. And one place, I believe, is the third chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel just went away in the bitterness of his spirit, and he says, I'm not going to go, God. So God said, okay, Ezekiel, I want you to go down by the river of Shebar, and I want you to sit at the river of Shebar seven days. And for seven days, Ezekiel just sat, and he says, just look at the people. And that's all he did. For seven days, he sat and looked at the people. And at the end of seven days, he was ready to go. You see, God was bring, bringing Ezekiel to a place that he was going to learn that God alone was sufficient. And where God would take Ezekiel, he may not want to go, but when he had God, God would do amazing things in that place. 
one of the memories I have of that same area of China is one year we were there and they told us there will be a pastor that was going to come in the door who's suffering greatly. I hope you can talk to him, but you may not be able to. But he's coming in for the services and he will sit there and then he'll leave quietly after a couple of days. And I knew right away when that man walked in because in his eyes was fire. You could see it. There was a passion burning within him. It was so real. It was like his eyes were on fire. This man was just overwhelmed with God. But I could tell there was great suffering in this man. And after the couple days he was there, we had lunch together. And, and he asked if we would have prayer as uh, the groups were praying together. And he came up, and this was his prayer request. He had started many churches in the northern part of China. They were house churches, 40, 50, 60, growing quickly. And he was involved in those house churches, but he had a real problem. He was a government pastor in a three-self-registered church of 3,000 people, and he knew he could not stay there in clear conscience because they were requiring him to teach the word of God the way they were saying to teach the word of God. So he went to the government and he asked them, can I get free? Can I be free of the three self church? The government said, it's your life, it's your decision. And so he came there. And he looked at me and says, what do I do? And I, and I asked him this question, how do you want me to pray for you? And he said, just pray that I can accept the will of God. Maybe contentment could be summed up sometimes in something that simple, that we can just accept God's will. Paul was just simply saying, I have found Jesus and I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. But as he comes to the end of this, uh, this area we're considering today in verse four, 4 and 13, and it's one of those classical verses. Philippians is full of these kind of verses. You can grab onto, they encourage you, they nourish you, they strengthen you. And here he goes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, if you take this out of context and you stop by just saying, I can do it, uh, you don't have the picture, do you? What he says, Paul is saying here, is I can through him. And notice how far sweeping he was in his declaration of his faithfulness to God and seeing how powerful God was. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't, but he can through me. And when you come back to the very place we started the message of making the best choices for God, the choosing God's best, choosing that which honors him, that speaks highly of him, that glorifies his name. All of a sudden, I can't. I can't choose right, but he can through me. I even can't come back and bless others in the way God wants when I haven't had the ability, but he can through me. 
And Paul is here saying, but remember, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And here, Paul had just got through saying, I have learned, and however I have, whatever state I am, I will be content. I will rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. How? Because I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. It's a story that many of us have heard many times, but, but I just kind of came across it in meditation as I was thinking about this. And it's a story about the little boy who's walking along the seashore and he is holding on to a string and above him is a, a, a bank of clouds and he's just hanging on to the string and he just keeps walking and smiling and a gentleman walks up to him and asks this young man, why are, Sonny, why are you holding on to the string? And the little boy said, because above those clouds, there's a kite. And the man says, how do you know that there's a kite above those clouds? And the little boy said, mister, it's because I can feel its pull from the string. You see, what Paul was saying is wherever he got in his life, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how hard it was, he would feel the pull and the draft of the Father, the Holy Spirit bearing him up, strengthening him, giving him power to do what he could never do, giving him the ability to just shout through the Word of God, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. But without him, I can't do it. You looked at a group of men up here this morning. They can't do it without him. Not one of them. We're not gifted enough. We're not connected enough. But there is that truth that we can, we can hang on to just like you can in every family, in every circumstance, every trial. And that is, through Christ, I can do all things. I can do it through Christ. And notice how far sweeping that was. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens, through the Lord Jesus. First and Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is, is just reiterating this truth so many ways in the Bible, from so many angles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And once again, Paul says, I lock on this truth that God is able and I will not let go of it. I can't, he can. I can't do anything, he can do everything. Here's another one. I love this in Isaiah chapter 41. Another ver verse 10, another prophet who learned to be content in the Lord Jesus and his provision. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand and because of this, just as Paul wrote it, I can say, and you can say, and we can say, we can do everything through Christ 
who strengthens us. Choosing the best is, is, is a great privilege, we know that. And having the best one to give us the direction is really wonderful also when you have the Lord Jesus giving us the best. Jesus gives us the best, his spirit, his presence, his word, his saints even, to walk with us to choose the best. And he says, just choose the best, and I will bless in tremendous ways. And this is what he wanted for the church of Philippi. Just choose God's best, and let me multiply my blessings in the abundant ways that I choose to multiply my blessings. Maybe there's someone here this morning that has never chosen God's best. You know, you may have went to church. You may know how to, may be able to quote some verses. But God's best is his son. God's best is his sacrifice. Shortly, we are going to commemorate this truth at this altar in communion. And really what we're going to do is simply say, Lord, we acknowledge that there is no other sacrifice but your sacrifice. There is no other sufficiency, Lord Jesus, but yours. And with that, we can stand and say, God, by your grace, we'll do all things. We'll walk out these doors and God will take us to amazing places, but through him, we will do amazing things. But if that's you, today is the day to surrender your life to Jesus. Today is the day to simply say, Lord, I want your very best. And I know your very best took place at a place called Calvary, at a cross, and when you, where you gave your very best, your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have her everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word your faithfulness, your mercies, Lord, that are new every morning. I thank you, Lord, that we as your children can come to this altar and be partakers of your divine nature by faith. And yes, we will touch some emblems shortly, emblems that speak of your sacrifice and your shed blood, emblems that teach us symbolically of how much we need you spiritually, emblems that will call us back to you, Lord Jesus, have your way in us and through us. And yet, Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that cannot pray those words, Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I pray, Lord, that this very day, in this very sanctuary, you will speak to them. You will give them the words you will give them the thoughts to say, Lord, you are sufficient and I accept your work. So that as we come to this time of communion, they can partake believing in you. Oh, you teach us in your word that we are to examine ourselves and then partake, Lord. We want to all do that. Lord, we want to be in the faith of Jesus. We are in the faith of Jesus through your son, we want to partake together, Lord Jesus, in this wonderful, amazing time. We call what you're, even your disciples, your apostles, took 
throughout the ages, your church in all places of the world have taken. Oh, Lord, we desire to take it also. Have your way. May your will be done in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.